0: Please turn your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. We're continuing our study in this epistle of 1 John, and we continued kind of our introduction last Sunday, kind of spent two weeks introducing ourselves to, to 1 John, and we looked at the message that he was proclaiming that had been revealed to him by God. He had seeing Jesus we we talked as we looked at this introduction to 1 John we talked about the problems that the churches that he was ministering to were facing the the false teachers who had infiltrated the church and were were teaching wrong things about uh, Jesus and his deity and his humanity and, and what it meant to have a relationship with God and so this morning we're <clears throat> beginning in verse 5 going on through the rest of the chapter we're going to begin to look at this this paragraph this section of First John and And see something that John wants to teach us and teach his his audience about the nature of God and how to rightly understand sin. So, if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, 1 John chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10 here. In 1 John, I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version, and we read this in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. and his word is not in us. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us about who we are and who you are. We thank you that we have a a God who's wholly righteous. And Lord, help us to understand what sin is and, and how we fail to live in accordance with who we've been called to be. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. President Calvin Coolidge was famous for being a man of few words. According to one anecdote, it's said that he came home from church one Sunday and his wife asked him what the pastor preached about. He responded, true to form, with one word, sin. Well, his wife, pressed him. what did the pastor say about sin? He was against it, said Calvin Coolidge, right? Kind of a famous story there about Calvin Coolidge and his succinctness. Now, I hope that after the next few weeks, as we talk about sin and we talk about God's righteousness and we talk about what sin is and wrong thoughts about sin, that we'll be able to say more than we're against sin after we come to the end of, of next Sunday. What I hope that we see as we look through the, these passages that we're going to look at this morning, specifically this passage here in First John, what I, I hope that we understand is, is the danger of sin, the reality of sin, and how we should view sin, and how we should have a, a fear of falling into sin. In fact, let me just kind of read a couple passages in Scripture that, that talk about sin that I hope give us a taste for how dangerous and pervasive sin is. Galatians chapter 6 paul's talking to the church there in Galatian. He says in verse one, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that is, if you, you find anyone in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now think about what Paul is saying there he 's saying that if you find a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin. A person who's spiritually mature should, should help restore that person. But even a person who is spiritually mature, who is working to restore a person who he loves, who's fallen, even that person is in danger of sinning. Sin is a, a pervasive force, a deadly force. And, and Paul is saying, look, watch out, because even if you're trying to restore a person, you're a spiritually mature person trying to restore another person, you're still in danger of falling into sin. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, will say this about sin, verses 12 and 13. He also gives a caution. Watch out, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The writer of Hebrews understands that that it's so easy for a heart to become hardened to sin, that it's easy for a heart to to be deceived by what is actually sin, and, and sin is such a danger, the writer of Hebrews understands, that we need to, to daily be around people who are, are are encouraging us and saying, Hey, you know, press on, keep following after the Lord. Sin is dangerous, it is deceitful, it's tricky, it's deadly. James, will say this in James chapter 5, verse 19. "'My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, "'and someone brings him back, "'let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his, a sinner from his wandering "'will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins.'" Sin is, is, is such a, a deadly thing that a person who brings another person back from a, a sinful path is, is saving a soul. It's, it's, it's bringing someone back from a, a path that's going to lead to their destruction. What I'm saying is this. I, I hope we understand how dangerous sin is. And those of us who are believers at least understand this somewhat. A person who is a believer is a person who, at some point in their life, has recognized that sin is dangerous, has recognized that, that sin leads to destruction. And a person who's a believer has said, Look, I, I understand that, that, that I could be in danger from sin, and I need someone to save me from sin. And so a person who's a Christian is a person who's said, I'm, I'm turning from that, and I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. That's what a Christian is. They've recognized they're a sinner, recognized they need a Savior. Heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, okay, Jesus is my Savior. That's a person who's a Christian. A person who's a Christian then has understood at some point that, that sin is dangerous. There are certain things that we do when we encounter danger or understand that something could be potentially dangerous. When I got in my car this morning, the first thing that I did was, was put on my seatbelt. Why? Because I, I recognize that driving in a car is a dangerous thing, and if I don't have a seat belt on, I'm in danger of, of hurting myself in a crash or getting a ticket if uh, a police officer sees me with that. There's some sort of danger that I'm trying to address by putting on a seatbelt. Whenever a, a parent puts a, a newborn child to sleep, especially a first-time parent, they're, they're careful, they understand, okay, I need to make sure the that the baby is placed a certain way and that the blanket is placed on the baby a certain way because there's a a danger to this child if I, I don't treat this infant carefully. A person who's a believer has understood, okay, sin is dangerous and I need to live in a way that reflects that I recognize the danger of sin. The problem for all of us is that sometimes we can Forget how dangerous sin is. There may be some of you this morning who don't recognize that sin is dangerous. You've never placed your faith in Christ. You've you've never come to a moment where you say, I need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. So you haven't recognized the danger of sin. There may be others of us in here, of course there are others of us in here, who have recognized that as a danger and have said, okay, I'm going to confess my sin and place my faith in Jesus Christ. What we're going to see as we look at verses 5 through 10, remember John is talking about fellowship in 1 John and how we can be assured of fellowship with God. And here's the central idea I want you to grasp as we look at this passage. How you and I view sin reveals if we are truly in fellowship with God. How you and I view sin reveals if we are truly in fellowship with God. If we have truly come into relationship with a holy God, a God who is perfectly righteous, if we have truly come into fellowship with Him, it's going to change what we believe about sin, how we define sin, and how we respond to sin. And this morning and next week, as we begin talking about wrong thoughts that we sometimes, or some, or some people have about sin at times, as we talk about these wrong thoughts, a person who is truly in fellowship with God, I believe, is going to say, you know what? Even though some aspects of these wrong thoughts sometimes manifest themselves in my life, I agree with God that they're wrong thoughts, and I want to turn from them. I want God's grace to allow me to to go beyond these wrong thoughts and to think rightly about sin and and for my life to reflect what I want to believe about sin. The danger is if you hear these wrong thoughts about sin and you say, you know what, I don't agree that those are wrong thoughts. If you hear what God's Word says about wrong thinking about sin and don't agree with God that it's wrong thinking, there's a danger that you aren't truly in fellowship with God. In verses 6 through 10, there's going to be three statements that, that John makes. And these statements are, he's going to say, if we say, and then he's going to say something that these false teachers were saying. If we say such and such, that's, that's wrong, and here's why it's wrong. Or if we say this, that's why it's th- wrong, and here's why it's wrong. He's going to say three things that these false teachers were teaching the people in Asia Minor about sin and he's going to say why this is wrong wrong thoughts three wrong thoughts about sin that's what we're looking at this morning and next week in verses six through ten but before we get to verses six through ten there's verse five okay so turn your bibles to verse five and the first thing that we're going to see before we start talking about these wrong thoughts about sin the first thing that we're going to see is that god is light God is light. We see that in verse 5. And before John starts talking about the wrong thoughts about sin, he's going to tell us something about God and his character. Verse 5 says, remember in verses 1 through 4, he's been talking about this message that he's proclaiming, a message that uh, is the person Jesus, the, the Jesus is both the person who delivers the message and the message itself, and he's going to talk about this message that was from the beginning, which we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched, uh, this life that became manifested. In the, it's this life, this message that allows us to have fellowship with one another. And then he says this in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. And what is the message? That God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. There's a lot of things that John could have told the believers about who God is in verse 5. He could have talked about how God is love. He could have talked about God's justice. But instead, before he begins talking about sin and wrong thoughts about sin, he begins by talking about God and God's character as God being light. Why does he do that? Why does he begin with that? Let me suggest to you that before he starts talking about why these thoughts about sin are wrong, he wants to give us a standard by which to judge righteousness. You may have seen on uh, some Facebook posts of uh, this last week that the staff had a, a difficult Monday afternoon. You know that 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 storm came in and there was the the snow and there were uh, the staff, and, and I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, the staff managed to put not one but two of Diane's cars in the ditch, okay, and it wasn't Diane's fault, all right, there, but I will say this, the roads were very slippery, um, but not, I'm not saying anything. Um, we ended up putting two of car, Diane's cars in the ditch, and so uh, us, uh, you know, manly staff people, pastoral staff, uh, we thought we can get these cars out of the ditch, and so we went to the truck first, and we grabbed some shovels from the shed, and we, we start getting the, the snow out of the way, and, and uh, Kent gets behind the, the driver's wheel, and he turns on the truck, and, and uh, all the guys get behind the truck, and he, he gives it gas, and, and we start uh, pushing the truck and snow is flying all over the place. The wheels are spinning. But we look down at the ground, and when we're looking at the ground and comparing the ground to the truck, we realize that we are making progress. This, this truck is moving, and there's snow flying, and, and movement has been made. And then uh, we stop, and we step back. And when we realize that a lot of movement has been made, but we realize that in relationship to the road, we've made no progress. We are still just as much in the ditch as we were before. And by the way, if this was your field, we are admitting nothing, okay? <laughs> it, what, you're, you're thinking of a different truck. Um, this, is, this wasn't us. But wh- why does that matter? It doesn't matter <clears throat> how far along in a ditch we travel. We're still in a ditch. <laughs> the standard is the road. The, the road is the objective standard by which we say, look, we've made progress when we're more on the road than off the road, when we've gotten more onto the road than, than, than more off of the road, and we hadn't gotten more onto the road. Eventually, we, okay, eventually someone else pulled us out, but still, eventually both of Diane's cars were out of the ditch. What was the standard for the cars being out of the ditch? when they were on the road. When we're talking about God and and when we're talking about sin, John begins by by helping us understand who God is. Who is God? John says, God is light. Think about the the scriptural understanding of what it means that, that God is light. And John's writers would have been familiar with the Old Testament. Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. That's what we read in Psalm 36. David would say this in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine. 29. He says this to God. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. What, what do we see when we're talking about God as light? Well, first of all, and we see this in John as well, we understand that for God to be light, there's a contrast with darkness. There's this world that's dark and then there's this God who is light. And for God to be light, it means that people that find themselves in darkness can, can see how to live and, and where to go from the light that they receive from an external source from God. Isaiah, verse 60. Beginning in verse 60. Uh, sorry, Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 19. "'The sun shall no more be your light by day, "'nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, "'but the Lord will be your everlasting light, "'and your God will be your glory.'" Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. There's this world of darkness, and when we find ourselves in this world of darkness, not knowing how to live, there's a light from God. When we find ourselves in in darkness and in mourning, God is a source of light and comfort and deliverance in the midst of that as well. Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Jesus is the light, John tells us as well. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, it describes Jesus as the true light which enlightens everyone He was coming into the world. John 8, 12, Jesus speaks to the people and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, again he says, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What does it mean that God is light? It means that God... There's the world over here, and there's, there's God. God is light. He's, there's a contrast between the wickedness of the world and, and God, and God is the one who provides light to those who are in darkness so that we can live in the way that, that he wants us to. And so whenever John begins by telling us, look, God is light in verse 5, it's going to help us to understand what's so sinful about sin, what's so sinful about these wrong thoughts about sin in verses 6 through 10. Really, it's right in line with what we see in John chapter three, verses nineteen through twenty-one. This is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Okay, so here comes God into the world, and how what does it mean to have fellowship with God? That's kind of what we're talking about in First John. Well, a person who has fellowship with God is going to see the light and respond to it, but a person who doesn't have fellowship with God is going to say, look, I don't want that light. Everyone, verse 20, who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A person who wants to walk in sin doesn't want the light from God. Okay. Again, we're talking about Wrong understandings of sin in verses 6 through 10. John begins by talking about how God is light. And for, for John, God is light means that God is good. And a person who's in sin and in, in darkness won't want that light. But a person who wants to have a relationship with God will want that light so they can, can see how to live. In verse 5, when John is telling us that, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all, he's saying, look, God is good good. God is the one who's good he 's the standard by which we determine whether or not something is sinful or righteous. I was reading a, a little bit from a, a book by John Frame on, on systematic theology this last week, and, and he said something very interesting he, and I'm kind of i 'll paraphrase some things that, that he talked about, but essentially Imagine I said to you that my mechanic is a good mechanic. What would it mean that I said my mechanic is a good mechanic? I I wouldn't be telling you that he's, like, goodness itself. I'd I'd say here's some qualities of a good mechanic. A good mechanic is going to be a person who fixes your car well. He's going to be a person who charges a, a fair price. And he's going to do conscientious work. So here are these, these qualities of being a good mechanic. And when I say that my mechanic is a good mechanic, I'm saying he's done the things necessary to fulfill these attributes. When my kids say, Dad, you're a good dad, assuming they're correct, there's, there are these characteristics of what makes a dad a good dad. He spends time with his kids. He loves his kids. And I, when I'm a good dad, I've, I've met those those sta- that standard, those characteristics. If I tell you that my car is a good car, it means that my car is functioning well. There's some things that a good car does. It runs, it's economical, so forth. And my car is, is meeting those attributes. But what does it mean that God is good? Classical Greek philosophers kind of wrestled with this Question. One Greek philosopher, Plato, was, was talking about the, the Greek gods and, and how they believed that Greek gods told them certain things to do. And his question was, he goes, now, do the Greek gods just get to arbitrarily decide what's good? Do they get to say, it's good to tell the truth, and they just kind of decided that, and so that makes that good? And if they had said that it's good to tell a lie, that would have been good? He said, is that how goodness works? Or is there like a standard of goodness? And the gods recognize that standard, and so they, they tell us what to do and what not to do. That's the question he wrestled with. And, and he believed that there was an objective standard. Here's what goodness is, and, and the gods recognize that, and the gods told us to do something that was evil. That would be wrong. There's objective goodness. What does it mean that God is good? Is God good like my mechanic is a good mechanic? He, Does the right things, and so he's a good God. No, John tells us, and this is really important to understand, I think, for us to understand why sin is so so bad and, and what sin is, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. John says, God is light. God doesn't just do good things. God is goodness itself. That's why in Leviticus, God would say this to Moses. He says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I... The Lord your God am holy. God doesn't say, look, there's a bunch of rules out there that I would like to follow. And I want everyone else to follow those rules with me. No, these rules aren't just a bunch of rules. They are essential to his character, who he is, He's holiness itself. And if we're gonna be in a relationship with a holy God, we must be holy. Jesus would say this in Matthew 5:48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's essential to God's character. It's it's who he is. He is goodness. God is light. And if we're going to understand what it means to be in a relationship with him and and how sin damages that relationship, we must understand who God is at his core. You know, if you were going to describe yourself to someone, you might say, you know, you're a person who, maybe you're a person who's really wound up tight, and you say, you know, I'm a person who loves punctuality, or I'm a person who loves being a free spirit, or there's something about your your personality, your your character that you don't have to work on being that. It's who you are. God at his at his core is holiness. He is righteousness. He is light, and everyone who's going to to be in relationship with him needs to be righteous. Now, okay, well, hold on. We're going to talk about sin. What does it mean to be righteous? And again, uh, Frame, uh, John Frames laid out some questions or, or some attributes of, of obedience, what it means to be righteous that, that I think are helpful for us in just a moment as we begin talking about sin. He kind of laid out three things that, that define being righteous that, that, that we find in Scripture. First of all, doing what's right, being in accordance with the idea that God is light and God is goodness, it means that you and I are obedient, we do what God tells us to do. Later in 1 John, we're going to see that sin is lawlessness. And so being obedient to God, being righteous, means we do what God tells us to do, but, but it's more than that, right? The second attribute of obedience to God, of righteousness, is not just doing what he says, not just obeying his law, but having the right goal in life. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 31, Paul writes, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so not only am I, I, doing, the right, am I doing the right things, I'm having the right goal, that, that, that in everything I do, not only am I being obedient, but that God would be glorified in that. And then the third thing is, not only do I do the right things, not only have the right goal as I do them, that God would be glorified, but my motivation is right in Romans Chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So I'm doing the right things, and, and I'm, I'm having the right goal, and my motivation is a motivation of faith. That's righteousness. Okay. We're about to get into verses 6 through 10, but again, let, let's, let's, one more thing here from verse, verse 5 and kind of transition here. John is telling us that God is light, God is goodness. And 1 John is about fellowship, fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. Have you ever been in a situation where um, you felt a little bit awkward? And, and for some of you, I could ask, have you ever been in a situation where you didn't feel a little bit awkward? But um, have you ever been in a situation where you were going into a room, and you kind of looked at the people in the room as they're partying, and, and you realized, oh, man, I'm, I am not dressed the way I need to be dressed to come into this party? Or have you ever been in a situation where you're, uh, you're kind of, you, you come to a, a, uh, a house or something, and everyone's taking off their shoes, and you, you take off your shoes, and you're, oh, man, really, those socks? Uh, you know, my light red socks. Um, I mean, why... Why am I wearing these? You know, or maybe, man, oh man, these are my smelly shoes. Uh, is anyone else going to notice that I'm wearing my smelly shoes? Oh dear, you know, and you have the sense I'm not, I'm not prepared to enter into this this relational activity because there's there's you know something wrong with me. Remember one, one time I was I was uh, going to teach one evening. And this was many years ago and. I uh, I woke up in the morning and I had you know this this big ac acne uh, thing going on in my chin and oh man really tonight and so I I don't think about it that much but then the afternoon I'm getting ready to, to to go into this room to to speak and I look in the mirror I'm like oh yeah right I forgot about that and then I said Daniel that's just silly first of all it's pride second of all it's You always notice way more than anyone else notices. You're way more attuned. And I walk into the room, and the first thing someone grabs me oh, my. Oh, that looks terrible. You must feel terrible about going to speak. No, I don't. There's a sense of awkwardness sometimes. You're like, boy, I'm I'm not where I want to be to enter into this relational activity. As we come to verse 5 and get ready to talk about verses 6 through 10, we should feel uncomfortable. There should be like two questions that are kind of in our mind as we come to verses 6 through 10. One question is Can I even have a relationship with God? If God is light, can I even have a relationship with God? And then the second related question is if it's possible for me to have a relationship with God, what are we going to do about this sin thing? How am I going to be able to enter into a relationship with God when we've got this problem with sin? We're going to see three wrong thoughts about sin and what it means for our relationship with god but we start with the idea that god is light god is holy and then we see why these thoughts about our sin are so wrong and why they don't understand the false teachers didn't understand rightly how to come into relationship with god with the presence of sin here's the first wrong thought here's the first wrong thought from verses six and seven i can walk in sin and walk with god I can walk in sin, and I can walk with God. And here's what John says, and again, he's, he's articulating the thoughts that these false teachers would have. If we say, and this is what he's saying, but it's what these false teachers are saying, if we say we have fellowship with him, while at the same time we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If I say, look, I can walk in sin, and it doesn't affect my relationship with God. He's saying we lie and do not practice the truth. This is a false statement, a wrong thought about sin and how it affects our relationship with God. Remember, these false teachers that are influencing the church there in Asia Minor believe in a separation between the material and the spiritual. They believed that everything that was material was evil. And so they believed that God could not have become flesh. And they believed that what took place in the material world was always going to be evil. But what took place in the material world, the evil things that took place in the material world, didn't influence the spiritual world. You could keep the spiritual world and the material world separate. They were by nature separate. And so what happened in the material world didn't affect what happened in the spiritual world. And so there's a belief by these, we call them kind of a pre-Gnostic philosophy, there is a belief that they could live in sin and that sin wouldn't affect the relationship with God. Now, this wrong teaching isn't denying the reality of sin. They're not saying, oh no, sin doesn't exist and and, uh, sin is just an imaginary thing. They're saying, no, 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 we acknowledge that sin exists, but sin doesn't affect my relationship with God. What happens in this material world doesn't affect the spiritual one. What does John say about that? He says, no, 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 that's that's a lie. How does that play itself out in our, our contemporary mindset? You see, what this is, and, and stay with me here, this isn't a denial of sin, it's a denial of the seriousness of sin. It's a denial that sin seriously damages our relationship with God. And so we, we see all sorts of manifestations of this. A person might say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but, you know, we're all sinners. And, and, and God God is a big enough God to deal with my sin and, and not be bothered by it. So I was talking to a person on, on Friday night about kind of this idea, and, and he, he articulated it this way. He said, you know, th- that idea is kind of like saying, uh, come to God as you are, and stay that way. <laughs> That's the attitude of a person who doesn't understand the seriousness of sin and how it affects our relationship with God. A, a person who has this, this mentality says, look, uh, don't judge me and, and God's not going to judge me. God's bigger than my sin. These things are just kind of moment, momentary slip-ups and, and it doesn't really matter because we're all sinners anyway. Jeremiah 5 addresses this attitude. In Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah is talking to, to false prophets, and these false prophets are coming to people who are engaged in sin, engaged in disobedience to God, and they're saying, oh, you know what, it's, it's, that's not sin, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. And listen to what Jeremiah says to these people as they listen to these, these false teachers. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 5, he says, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season. Verse 25, Your iniquities have turned these away. These blessings that God was bringing, it says, Your iniquities have caused these things to be turned away by God. And your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men. Verse 29, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? So there's a belief that, hey, we can live this way, we can act this way, and and God doesn't care, and God says, no, I I do. And there's going to be consequences to our relationship because of it. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land, Jeremiah says. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule at their direction. In other words, they're saying things about me that aren't true. They're saying things to kind of appease the people, to allow them to continue to live the way that they want to live in disobedience to God. But Listen to this. My people love to have it so. My people are listening to these people telling them, hey, your sin doesn't matter. You're still cool with God. People love that, God says. But what will you do when the end comes? You don't believe your sin affects your relationship with me. You're pursuing your sin. You continue to live in disobedience to me. What are you going to do when the end comes? When I deal with sin? It's not that the believer never struggles with sin, right? But the believer hears this, this thought, I can walk in sin and walk with God, and the believer hears that goes, oh, I, I know that's wrong, and I, I know I've, I've fallen into that trap, and, and I need to re- repent and, and turn from that. You see, the, the Gnostics, the, the, or these, this Gnostic influence in First John, they said, look, here's the material world, do what you're going to do in the material world, and the spiritual world is, is unaffected. And the same is true in our culture today. You know, there have been countless times, countless times where I've sat down with people who are are contemplating some sort of of, of sin, and we talk about it, and they say, yeah, I I know that that's sin, and I I know that God doesn't want me to do that, but God loves me, and, and God wants me to be happy. And if I do something that, that displeases God, I, I can always say that I'm sorry and ask for his forgiveness. Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2, talks about people who have, who have sinned against God. He talks about a, a person, a man who, who doesn't love his wife and divorces his wife. And verse 17, he says, you wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, look, how have we wearied God? Why is God upset? He says, by saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Hey, I'm living this life of of immorality. I'm doing these things in the material world, but God loves me. God delights in me. It's a lie to say I can walk in sin and I can continue to walk with God. The person who says, uh, I'm going to pursue immorality. I'm going to, I'm going to turn on my computer and I'm going to, I'm going to go to the places that I know that, that God would not have me go. I'm going to think about things that God doesn't want me to think, but, but God loves me and I can, you know, God delights I me. Mean, this doesn't affect my relationship with God. That person is, John tells us, a liar. A person who says, I, I can love the material world. I, I can pursue all the wealth of this material world and I can love those things, And I can love the world, and I can love God. No, you can't. Whoever loves the world, John is going to tell us, the love of the Father does not abide in him. A person who loves the Lord is going to understand the seriousness of sin. And so often we we come to a point in our our lives where we say, you know what, sin is not that big of a deal. Sin doesn't affect my relationship with God. God and I are still okay, but that's a lie. Here's what, so that's a wrong, the first wrong thought about sin is that I can walk in sin and walk with God. And he says this in verse 7. Here's here's the right thought. He says in verse 7, but, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This right understanding says, Look, if I come into a relationship with God, it means that I'm going to be walking in the light. It doesn't mean that I never struggle with sin, but it means that I'm going to be generally walking in the light. And when the light of God comes into my life, I'm going to delight in that and say, That is true, and the darkness is false. And my relationship with God is going to lead me to, to walk in the light. It's, and it's not this, catch this. It's not, I walk in the light, and because I walk in the light, I, I get to have a relationship with God. In other words, I do enough things to where I. I walk out of the darkness by myself and get to the light. No, God is the light who shines in the darkness. I respond in faith to Him. And then, as a reflection of this new, transformed life I have in Christ, I'm walking in the light. And I have, because of that, fellowship with other believers. That's the first consequence. There's fellowship both with God and with each other. Fellowship that cuts across diverse backgrounds. And the second consequence of walking in the light he says, is that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. How does God deal with our sin? It's not by us simply saying, not a big deal. God doesn't deal with our sin by us just pretending the sin doesn't even exist. God deals with our sin through the blood of his son, Jesus. For us to say, I can walk in sin and walk with God is a lie, John tells us. And it's a lie because it's telling God the cross wasn't necessary. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 19 and 20, For in him, that's in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To enter into a relationship with God does not just just happen haphazardly. We don't find ourselves in a relationship with God. God dealt with the problem of our sin through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, the death of the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelled. Sin in all its forms is a big deal. The believer understands that and responds rightly to that. Let me just give you, we're not going to talk about these really in-depth this morning, but let me give you the last two wrong thoughts about sin to, to kind of meditate on as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together this morning. And By the way, the Lord's Supper that we partake in is, is open to all of us who've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church in order to participate in the Lord's Supper, but we do ask that you be a believer, a person who's turned from sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. But here's the, here's the second wrong thought that people have about their sin. The second wrong thought is to say, I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm not a, a sinner. Verse 8. If we say, this isn't John saying this, this is the false teachers again, if we say we have no sin, in other words, uh, since I've become a Christian or since I've attained this, this new enlightenment, the false teachers might say, I, I don't have a struggle with sin anymore. There's no, there's no residual effects of sin in my life whatsoever. The conduct that I'm engaging in cannot be sinful because I'm not a sinner. So the first wrong thought was, yeah, sin exists, but it doesn't affect my fellowship with God. This wrong thought is, I'm not affected by sin in any way whatsoever. I I don't have that in my nature. I I don't uh, have the effects of my old nature in me any longer. We'll talk more about this next week. And what does John say about that? No, no, that's, that's not the right way to respond. Verse 9, instead, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the third wrong thought about sin? The third wrong uh, thought about sin is to say, I haven't sinned. I have not sinned. So the first person says, yeah, I'm sinning, but it doesn't affect my relationship with God. The second person says, you know, I don't even struggle with sin anymore. The third person here, I I think, is saying, um, when they're confronted with an action they've just done that is sinful, they say, "No, that wasn't sin. What I just did—that that was not sin. That that wasn't a transgression of God's character." He says, "We do that, we make God a liar, and His word is not in us." And we're going to look at verses one and two of chapter two in, in the coming weeks that are very, very closely related to what. John is saying here, and John says in those verses, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How you view sin reveals much about your relationship with the Lord. If This morning you say, you know what, I I understand sin does affect my relationship with with God. I I look at my life and I compare it to the character of God. I I say, I am a sinner. Even though I'm a saint, there's still aspects of a sinner within me. And the believer, when confronted with sinful acts, agrees with God, yes, those things are sinful. Yes, my gossip, although it seems so small, is sinful. My irritation with people, although it seems so small, yes, that is sin. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And I want you just, first of all, I want to do a couple things. First of all, Ask God to reveal sin in your heart to you this morning. Maybe there are some things that, that you have just put out of your mind, you haven't confronted yourself with, and, and they've become such a part of your life that it's hard for you to even acknowledge these things are sinful any longer. And, and ask God to reveal the things in your life that are affecting your fellowship with Him, the things that are sin. They're not mistakes. They're not just failings. They're not just things that aren't right. They're they're sin, uh, violations of the character of a holy God. Ask God, first of all, to reveal those things to you this morning. And and then secondly, as God reveals those things to you this morning, I want you to confess to God, agree with God that those things are sinful, and ask for God's forgiveness and His grace in that area of your life. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that this morning.